welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust. My name is Kelly Deutsch, and today I'm joined by Christopher West, who is a teacher and best-selling author on Theology of the Body. Now, if you've heard of Theology of the Body and you're in the U.S., you likely have Christopher to thank for it. If you haven't heard of it, you're in for a treat. It's a whole new way of speaking about the meaning of sexuality, our longings, and how our very bodies reveal the divine. And speaking of, I feel like that's how our paths intersected from the beginning, was really talking about that, um, that deep longing that we all have. And I don't know, perhaps some of us have it more acutely or just experience it more acutely. Um, and that's been such a delight for me personally, being able to discover that that longing has its roots in the divine and how many of the mystics talk about that. And I'm curious if you would like to share a little bit of your story first, how you encounter that ache and how that also intertwined with perhaps the contemplative path. Yeah, those are great questions. We could go on for hours and hours. I, I usually encourage my students, if they're having trouble getting in touch with what I call the ache, uh, the longing, I, I encourage them to look back on the things uh, from their childhood that, that they loved. Um, a favorite song, a favorite place in nature, a favorite tree that they climbed, a favorite meal that they had, a, a, a pet. Pets remarkably get us in touch with our deepest longings. And a lot of us, myself included, have a lot of wounds around those things because we have these longings, they get awakened, and then rarely do they get satisfiably fulfilled. And so we're left in pain, we're left disillusioned, we're left disappointed. But as I look back at my own life, there were certain definite moments where I was like, oh man, what is this inside of me? And one of the ones I often tell the story is, I was eight years old, I was lying in my bed and Bruce Springsteen comes on the radio, this is the 70s, and he was singing his 70s anthem, Born to Run. And this, this song, Kelly, has been like a prophecy of my whole life. Number one, he wants to get to this place and he's running, running, running to get there. And he wants to get there with the girl named Wendy. Little did I know, 17 years later, I would marry a girl named Wendy. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's crazy. And at, at one point, he says to Wendy in the song, he says, uh, someday girl, I don't know when we're gonna get to that place where we really wanna go and 
will walk in the sun, right? What an image, right? And then he says, but till then, tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. At this point, he cracks open his rib cage and he lets this cosmic cry come out of his heart. And uh, if you'll permit me, it, <laughs> it went something like this. Whoa, whoa. Hmm. oh, 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 I'm lying in my bed. Again, I'm, I'm eight years old. And, and something ginormous just rumbles through me. It's like the ceiling split open in my bedroom. I'm staring into the mystery of the universe and, and God falls out of the sky. Uh, I didn't know what the heck had happened to me, mm. but I did know this, whatever Springsteen wanted, I wanted it too. And one of the tragedies of my, my upbringing, one of the sad aspects of being raised in the Catholic church in the seventies and eighties was nobody. And I, I mean, nobody connected the dots for me between that ache that got awakened in my heart listening to Springsteen or the ache that got awakened in my heart when after a few years of waiting, like literally since kindergarten, I was waiting, waiting, waiting to sit next to Stacy Reed. And finally the nuns rearranged the classroom so that Stacy Reed was right beside me. And, and if, if the window was open in the back of the classroom and the breeze came in just right, I could smell her hair. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope Stacy Reed is listening to this. <laughs> oh gosh. Oh gosh. <sighs> and these things, these experiences would, would awaken this ache in me, but, but nobody connected the dots with that ache and what I was learning in religion class, which I could summarize with one word, boring. I, I, I've come up with this metaphor. I say um, I was raised on what you might call the starvation diet version of, of religion. And then my religion as a, a young person and a teenager was what I call the, the fast food version, which is the secular culture's promise of immediate gratification for my hunger. And I always say to religious folk, I say, do not lie to me the fast food tastes really good going down, especially if you're somebody like me who's really hungry. Uh, really, if the, if the two choices for my hunger, if the only two choices are starvation on the one hand and fast food on the other, I don't care what I learned growing up. Uh, you know, fast food's bad, don't, don't eat it, don't do it. Uh, the thou shalt nots only last so long and then the hunger gets to be so overwhelming that you don't care anymore. And you, you, you grasp at whatever you can grasp at to try to satisfy that hunger. And it does taste good going down. But, you know, to go with the metaphor, the analogy, if fast food becomes your steady diet, eventually the grease and the sodium, so to speak, is going to catch up with you. And that's kind of a picture of me in my college years. Mm-hmm. But the ache never went away. The ache never went away. It just compelled me to keep searching for something more. Yeah, and I feel like that's still a on that story search. of so many people, you know, especially, you know, followers here who grew up in some form of a religion that just didn't, didn't connect with that spark, that ache, that something that they encountered. And I love that, you know, your first 
you know, memory that you share about that, it has to do with beauty. Cause I think that's something that so easily awakes, awakens that within us. And I'm so convinced that we're living in an age of beauty, you know, that for so long, the church religion has tried like truth, 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 and like shoving it down our throats. Um, and uh, while truth is important, beauty just has a way of sneaking in the back door. Yeah, uh, totally agreed. I, I would, I, I love the way you said it. And I totally agree. We're, we're in an age where, put it this way, if we don't realize that it's all about beauty, uh, there's no, there's no future for, for religion. Mm. And, and I say, you know, you said there's been this emphasis on kind of shoving the truth down our throats, truth and beauty go together. Mm-hmm. And, and when we separate them, uh, we end up scorning the truth. And I say, porning the beauty, mm-hmm. right? Truth is beautiful. When truth is presented in a dry, doctrinaire, boring way, we rightly rebel against it because the heart is made for the beauty of the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go chasing after beauty, but, but when we divorce beauty from the truth, when we get truthophobic because truth has been presented in a dry, doctrinaire uh, oppressive, even tyrannical way, we rightly rebel against that. But when we go in, in search of beauty separated from the truth, we end up, we end up pouring the beauty. And by that, I mean uh, zooming in on a very superficial understanding of beauty for a base kind of gratification. Mm. And, and both, are, both are destructive of our humanity. How do we rediscover the splendor, the beauty of the truth and, and the, the truth of beauty? They got, they got to go together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes me think of neurobiology and left brain, right brain. Like if you're all yes. left brain, you know, that's very analytical and straightforward. I want to be efficient and all of that. And it focuses on those facts and details and all of that. And right brain is much more open to mystery and paradox and um, being in the present moment and relationship and how much those two need each other, need to be together. And um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating though for me how, how that more... Um, right-brained approach that's open to mystery is often what prompts us to look into some of these areas like the contemplative life and to deep dive into beauty or to ask the big questions and that's what so many people struggle with is hey I asked these questions but you know these pat answers just aren't doing it for me. Yes you had asked me to connect some of my early experiences with getting in touch with that ache with the contemplative life and I remember hearing a definition of prayer uh, that just like, like resonated like the most beautiful chime of a glorious bell. Like, yes, yes. It's this, that prayer is nothing but becoming a longing for God. Mm-hmm. Becoming a longing for God. That's connecting the dots, right? I love it. Nobody taught me that growing up in Catholic schools in the 70s and 80s. Prayer was, prayer was where you, you put this pious mask on and, and tried to pretend everything's fine and good and, and, and uh, you know, say something rote and do the, you know, all the... I, I have nothing against rote prayer as far as it goes, but if, if, you, if you stay there, you're stifled. 
I, I'll never forget an experience I had. I was on a retreat. This was 15 years ago or more. I was married about 10 years at the time, and my wife and I were going through some really difficult growing pains. And I had this beautiful mystical Monsignor on this retreat who was leading me. He was, gosh, now he's in his 90s. So he was, he would have been in his mid-70s at the time. And uh, he said, he knew my wife well as, as well. And he said, Christopher, the solution to the problems in your marriage is you need to learn how to pray. And I was like, okay, what do you mean? What do you mean? He said, prayer, as St. Augustine says, is an exercise of desire. And we need to get you in touch with your deepest desires. Christopher, that's, you don't know how to pray because you're not in touch with your deep desires. And I thought to myself, well, I kind of am in touch with my deep desires, but okay, I'm just going to follow along whatever he says. I'm going to give you some exercises on this retreat to get you in touch with your deepest desires. And he says, you have to promise me one thing, that you will not censor anything that gets stirred up in your heart as you go through these exercises. And I said, okay. I had no idea, Kelly, what I was in store for over the next few days, over the next few hours, actually. I just started going through these exercises, getting me in touch with my desires. And sure enough, stuff started to well up from childhood, uh, unfulfilled desires. I was talking about pets earlier and my parents got rid of my beloved dog when I was nine years old because it shat on the carpets. And this was like the, the biggest, I think it was the biggest trauma of my childhood was just, I come home from school one day and this dog I loved that would, I, I'd be walking down the alley behind my house and I'd hear the dog barking and running out and its line would run out and it would always do these backflips, you know, cause it was so happy to see me. And one day I come home from school and the dog doesn't come, come, running, come running out to greet me. And I find out my parents just got rid of the dog, like gone. Uh, and this, this wound is coming up on this retreat. And, and then other wounds of girls I asked out that, that said no or unfulfilled yearnings. And with all this unfulfilled yearning came rage. Mm. And I mean rage at God. And the Monsignor had said, don't censor whatever comes up. So I, I said, okay, here we go. I'm just going to let what's coming up come out. And it, it, it erupted like a volcano. Mm. And I remember saying, God, I get it why people hate you. I get it why people are atheists. You give us all these desires and we don't know what the hell to do with them. And then you just seemingly leave us in this place of ache that we can't satisfy. I'm like, what the is that? Who the do you think you are? I mean, it just came bubbling out. And with it, with that came a lot of, as they say, Catholic guilt, right? That I was... Hmm saying all these things at God. And so I called up the priest in my Catholic guilt. And I said, I said, I got to go to confession right away. I, and he said, okay, come on over. And I said, uh, you know, bless me, Father. It's been three hours since my last confession. <laughs> and I told him exactly what I said to God without the beeps as mm -hmm. I related to you. And I'll ne Kelly, I'll never forget what he said. And it changed my life. Changed my life. 
he said, good prayer. And I was like, excuse me? I thought he was going to say good confession. <laughs> but he said, he said, good prayer. He said, that's prayer. You're learning how to pray. You're getting in touch with your deepest desires. You're getting naked before God. He says, you don't have to pray that you got naked before God. You have to pray that, or, or excuse me, you don't have to confess that you got naked before God. He said, you have to confess that you haven't been naked before God. You've been wearing these pious masks when you go to pray. He says, now you're getting real. That's prayer. It changed my life. Um, that was 15 years ago, and I'd say I've been on uh, an ever-deepening, you know, there, there are peaks and valleys and all of it, but, but if you look at the general curve, you go deeper, you go higher, you go more into the mystery, mm -hmm. the transcendent mystery behind it all, and you realize my ache is my connection with that transcendent mystery. Uh, what I grew up thinking from my starvation diet approach to religion, I, I thought the ache was the enemy of religion. I thought the ache was the enemy that I had to squash or crut. No, no, no. It's my connection. Uh, another favorite saying, this comes from Pope Benedict XVI. He says, he says that burning ache in the heart of the human being is like a signature inscribed with fire by God himself. That's my experience. That's my connection. I find, I find transcendence. I find the mystery in the ache. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm struck too by that um, nakedness before God. Like I love how John of the cross talks about that, you know, because it's such a radical poverty where we yeah. have to let go of all that we think that we want or that we are, or, um, all that we're attached to, all that we think piety looks like, or holiness, or being a good person, or whatever term you want to use. Oh, man, letting go the of denuding. all of that. That's, yeah, John of the Cross calls it denuding, mm -hmm. where we, we, are, we are stripped, and we are, we are staring at our poverty. And, and one of the great illuminations for me in my journey has been realizing that that poverty, that emptiness that yearning, that ache has a name. Mm. It's called Eros, yes. <laughs> a holy Eros. Uh, discovering that was absolutely transformative for me. Mm. Uh, I like to say that God gave us Eros, uh, erotic longing, if you will. He gave us Eros to be like the, the fuel of a rocket that has the the power to launch us to the transcendent mystery behind it all. Um, sadly, you know, in, in, our, in our broken world, those rocket engines tend to be inverted and we go seeking the pleasures of this world uh, to try to satisfy what, what I would describe as an ache for the infinite. Mm. And so I, I've come up with this little way of putting it. I say, we have three choices with Eros. We will either become a stoic, repress, 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 an addict who aims the desire for the infinite at finite pleasures. And, and here I offer 
maybe a, a, a mystical definition or a theological definition of, of addiction rather than a psychological one, I would put it this way. I would say we become addicted in as much as we aim our desire for infinite joy at finite pleasure. Mm. We go and we get that finite pleasure and it does give us some semblance of satisfaction or we wouldn't go there. But there's the principle of diminishing returns, right? We need more of the same to get the same satisfaction. So we go and we get more and then we're left empty. And then we go and we get more and we're left empty. We go and we get more. That's addiction, right? Mm -hmm. So we're either going to be with Eros, that yearning for the infinite. We're either going to be a stoic, an addict, or an aspiring mystic where we learn how to open it up, right, to the transcendent mystery. Mm. And that reminds me of something. Hold on one sec. Sure. I'm pull something out of my, my bag here. My daughter, Beth, she's 17, and she's heard me talk this way before, and she drew this picture of these three choices. I'll hold it up for you here. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, wow. so here... Here's the stoic, mm -hmm. repress, repress, just hold it all back. Here's the addict. The addict opens it up, but aims it at the finite. Hmm. Whereas the aspiring mystic opens it up and aims it at the infinite. Oh my gosh. And I love that like position. There is such a like embodied, oh gosh, just opening, which happens. Yeah. I mean, mm, that's yummy. And, and St. Augustine says, this guy is closer to the truth than this guy. Mm. You know, he, he says those who are lost in their passions are less lost than those who have lost their passions. Mm. Mm -hmm. It makes sense because the first thing we got to get in touch with is that cry of the heart. This guy's, this guy's not in touch with it. This guy's in touch with it. He's just aiming it in the wrong direction. Mm. Right, so we, we need to learn how to become a longing for God. That's yeah. contemplative prayer. That's juicy. It is juicy. It's full of all <laughs> kinds of mystical nectar. <laughs> Love it. Um, what what would you say is your favorite way to pray presently? Like, what does prayer time look like for you? Well, my daily routine is I will do some. I'll begin with some form of spiritual reading. Uh, I'm reading a book right now. Uh, I can grab it. I always begin with um, my spiritual reading. Sorry for the delay. No I'm reading this book right now, which I would highly recommend, hmm. called The Relevance of the Stars hmm. by Lorenzo Albacete. He was um, a professor of mine and uh, a mentor to me over 20 years in my life. He died in 2014, but this is a collection that just came out of, of miscellaneous writings of his. And what he means when he says the relevance of the stars, he, he I'll never forget this scene. And this, this will bring me back around to my daily prayer. But he said, I'm sitting in his classroom. This was 25 years ago. And he told a, a, a story of, uh, that he got from a poem by um, Garcia Lorca. And the poem is called something like the, the, the story of the, the adventures of a snail or something. I forget the exact title. And the snail is going through the woods 
asking frogs and other creatures the meaning of life. And eventually the snail comes upon this colony of ants and the ants are beating mercifully, mercilessly one of their own. And the snail says, what's going on? What's going on? And the ant who's being beaten says, I've seen the stars. I've seen the stars. And then you get the backstory that this ant had stepped out of line, you know, the worker ants, uh, they're all about production. This worker ant had stepped out of line and, line and climbed a tall tree and for the first time gazed at a million bright eyes staring back at it and was filled with absolute wonder at the transcendent mystery of the universe. And this ant very happily and excitedly comes back down the tree to tell all his other ants, to tell all the other ants, I've seen the stars, I've seen the stars. And the worker ants just beat up this ant mercilessly because he had stepped out of line. And Albacete, Albacete uses this as, as a, a way of cracking open the society we live in today, where it's all about production. It's all about do this, produce, produce, produce. And we've lost sight of the stars. We've lost sight of, of the contemplative awe and wonder at the transcendent mystery behind the universe. And one of the things that Albacete used to say that has just stayed with me for years, he says, religion is either the reasonable quest for the satisfaction of the deepest longings of the heart, or it is a dangerous, divisive, harmful waste of time. Mm -hmm. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. it's, that's what it is. Um, so yeah, uh, spiritual reading, all, all that to say, spiritual reading is how I start my daily prayer. Um, then I go into uh, reading of the scriptures, and then it's just quiet listening. Quiet listening. What's going on in my heart? What got stirred in the readings? What got stirred in, in something's going on in my family, something going on in my work? Um, I had a, I'll share this interesting experience. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Elvis documentaries lately. And I'm fascinated uh, by the history of the 20th century and particularly the sexual revolution. Because the sexual revolution was when the culture went from this to this. That's what happened. Right, a hundred years ago, it was scandalous if you saw a woman's ankle. Right, we don't want to return to that. With this, that that was that was that prudish, fearful, stoic approach to things is not healthy. It's what caused the explosion, but we aimed it. Sadly, we aimed it in the wrong direction. My my work, the work that I do, is I want to help people who are stuck here not to go here, but to go here. Mm. And I wanna help people who are stuck here to go here as well. Mm. And I study, I love studying those forces that were at work in unleashing the passion of the sexual revolution. Mm. And Elvis is one of them. And, and I, so I've been watching these documentaries about Elvis. And, and if I were to write 
a, a book about Elvis. It would be called Elvis and the Release of Passions or Elvis and the Release of the Culture's Passions or something. People went crazy for Elvis. Yeah. Crazy for Elvis. And he was he was the first one who said, in fact, in one of these documentaries, uh, one of these documentaries, one of the people interviewed said something like, um, Elvis just had the courage to let come out of his body what most people at the time were just bottling up. Mm -hmm. And Springsteen gave this commentary in one of the documentaries I watched about how when Elvis opened up his passions, it's what inspired Springsteen. So Springsteen then inspired me. So I'm kind of like Elvis's grandson here. <laughs> yeah. Again, Again, my, my, when I aimed my passions this way, it just caused a lot of pain and misery. It brought an immediate gratification, right? That's why I call it fast food. But, but I wanna help what Elvis awakened in the culture. I wanna help it to go that direction. And so I was watching this documentary a couple nights ago. All of this is to answer the question about my prayer life um, and, and Elvis, Elvis went into a lot of debauchery and this documentary kind of unfolded some of that. Uh, you know, the sexual liaisons backstage every night and it, 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 became, it became really destructive. I mean, unto his death. Isn't it interesting, all these people we idolize and, and uh, they become such rock stars either literally the rock star like Elvis or whoever is famous that we idolize, how often there, that, that, that leads to destruction. Um, and Elvis is a great example of that. And so I was really disturbed in my heart. This was a couple days ago, having watched this documentary about, I have a great admiration for Elvis. I love his art. I love the way he, he used his body on stage. He conducted, he conducted the whole orchestra behind him with his body, like the, the, you know, a conductor will use his little wand, but Elvis's wand was his whole body, right? And he was a hunk of hunk of burning love, right? Um, but it led to debauchery, it led to destruction in so many lives. And so I'm, I'm sitting with this in my prayer time, this is just two days ago, and, and I kind of took my own advice, which was just be in touch with your heart. What's really going on in your heart? And I said, okay, Lord, this is what's really going on in my heart. I am, I am really uh, confused and, and, and disturbed by, by the debauchery in Elvis's life when I admire this guy so much for the gift of his art. And I heard these words um, that, yeah, Elvis may have been the king, but, but I'm the king of kings. And, and what people are really looking for Elvis unleashed this passion through his body. And, and here I'm just sharing from my own Christian perspective that, that the body that we're really looking for that unleashes, unleashes our passions, I would say as a Christian, is the body of Christ. Hmm. Christ talked about the power that went out from his body. Power went out from his body. I mean, you watch these concerts with Elvis from Hawaii, like the Aloha concert in 1973. And, and he's singing, uh, you give me fever 
and he and he he moves his shoulder and this wave of passion gets unleashed throughout the crowd and you hear the women just screaming their passions are getting awakened but i would say if if they aim their passion back at elvis that's going to lead to an addiction and destruction but there's one greater than Elvis here now, I would say, <laughs> right? There's the king, Elvis, but then there's the king of kings. I would say that Christ, the mystery, the transcendent mystery we're all looking for, took flesh. Mm. And through that body, when he moves his body, it awakens our passions. And here's a body that we can aim our passions at that doesn't lead to debauchery and destruction. It leads to mystical union. Mm. It leads to the ecstasy of St. Teresa of Avila. It leads to the, the, the ecstasies of St. John of the Cross and all the others we can name. Uh, so I would say I, I came to understand the gospel better by studying Elvis. <laughs> and and that's, that's like taking, taking Elvis. Remember those Play-Doh machines? You'd put the Play-Doh in and you'd squeeze it out and it'd come out in another shape. Like I put the Elvis Play-Doh in the in the contemplative prayer machine and it comes out as praise of 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 god that's what happened like mm. I, I hope that makes some sense i don't know if i just sound like a nutcase or not but that's a little yeah. that's a little window into the prayer life of christopher west how about there that there you go hmm. yeah it's amazing the different things that can be uh, an entry point you know yes. it, it's um everything anything can be an entry right. point and that's what I love about Christianity. You know, I feel like in our tradition growing up Catholic, uh, we might just call that sacramentality or the incarnation. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people calling that panentheism, like God in all things and all things in God, which I think is a great way or great shorthand for it. But it's such a beautiful thing that, um, unfortunately, I think a lot of fundamentalist forms of Christianity and even other religions miss out on that embodied reality of of all of creation and how each of those are portals, not just, you know, you don't just need an icon to pray with as, you know, something to open you into the infinite or, you know, your prayer beads or whatever it is. It's like, oh man. Uh, and so many people know that and intuit that just get out in nature. And it's like, oh my gosh, your whole soul bursts open. And oh, yeah. nation is real, Kelly. If it's real, if the transcendent mystery behind everything, what, in the Greek language, they call the logos, right? Mm -hmm. The logic behind everything, the meaning behind everything, the purpose behind everything. If that logos, if that transcendent mystery and purpose really took flesh, really entered this physical world, then there are traces of the logos in everything. Mm -hmm. in ev he's in the bottom of your cup of coffee. If you, Albacete used to say, what is it that awakens your heart? Press into it, press the whole way into it and you'll find the logos. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what excites you? What makes you interested? What makes you awake? What makes you alive? Uh, you know, I, I, uh, Elvis was of interest to me and I kept pressing in, I kept pressing in. And what did I discover? The logos, that's what I discovered. The logos in the flesh. That's what I discovered. Mm. Uh, what excites you? What delights you? Is is it carpentry? Is it gardening? Is it, are you like a connoisseur of fine wine or good beer or good coffee? Do you love uh, music? Do you love 
film? Do you love a hike in nature? Well, hike the whole way in. Get to the bottom of that beer. Press into why you loved that movie and it made you cry. Whatever it is, you're going to find the logos. And, and that, in, that encounter of, of, of the logos in everything, as you said, in the Catholic tradition, we call that sacramentality. Uh, and I, what was the word you used? Panentheism, mm -hmm. God in everything. Mm -hmm. To be distinguished from pantheism, which is right. everything is God. Right. Uh, but I like that word, panentheism, God in everything. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. sacramentality. Right. And I think that's really what everybody, I hear a lot of people talking about the universal Christ, and that really is the logos, right? The, the second person of the Trinity, if you will, the, the meaning yeah. that existed before, you know, the name Jesus was stuck on him. But like. the, the, the universal Christ is redundant. Mm -hmm. If you know who Christ, at least if, if Christ is who he claimed to be, mm -hmm. then the universal Christ is redundant. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have to add that qualifier onto it demonstrates that we've lost sight of who Christ really is, at least who he claimed to be. Mm -hmm. He claimed to be the transcendent mystery. He, yeah. he claimed to be the logos. Which is mind-blowing. <laughs> if, it's, if it's real, if it's real, it changes everything. Mm. It means we don't have to, I mean... Religion is often, in the general sense of the word, religion is often thought to be uh, fleeing or eschewing the flesh to reach the transcendent. Well, if the logo, if Christ is the logos and he really took flesh, well, that reverses the whole thing. It's God's coming in our direction. We don't have to escape the body to reach God. God took on a body to reach us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if we're trying to divorce ourselves from our bodies, we are running away from the logos yeah. in the flesh. Who's always been here. You know, that's such always. a, yeah, such a lovely thing. And I, it's, I know that's what so many people intuit. And that's one of the reasons why we leave behind sometimes those more rigid forms um, of religion that some people were raised in, you know, because it's They're like, definitely. I, I find God at the bottom of my beard, you know, and I found God, I mean, my gosh, how many people have you spoken with that, you know, in some like profound sexual encounter have like had this like profound experience encounter with the transcendent mystery. Yeah. Yeah. If, we're, if we really enter in to what the apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians five, that's exactly what he says. That sex, the sexual embrace is meant to be an encounter with what he calls the mega mystery. <laughs> I wish they had told me that in Catholic schools, right. right? I wish they had connected the dots between that, the mega mystery and what I was experiencing when Stacy Reed finally sat next to me. Instead, I went to porn, yeah. right? I took my hunger, my arrows, I took it to the fast food. Mm -hmm. uh, I, maybe I would have been spared a hell of a lot of trouble and, and heartache if, if, uh, if the nuns in Catholic grade school had been more like Teresa of Avila. <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I can think of um, when I was studying in Rome, um, unfortunately, there's still plenty of um, celibates, whether priests or religious, who, who live from the head up, you know, and aren't really in touch with their body. But I remember there was this one sister that I studied with. She was Franciscan. Her name was Suar Eva. 
And Ava was just so profoundly in her body. Like it was just so beautiful to be in her presence. And I was just like, oh, sorry, Ava, we need more of you in the world. And I'm curious who sticks out to you in life that just give that profound sense of being settled in their own skin, inhabiting their body. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, well, since we're talking about nuns, uh, the one who comes to mind is, do you remember Sister Wendy? The yes, art critic? Yes. Mm -hmm. Who was on PBS years ago? Mm -hmm. I love this nun. And she is what I would call uh, in the words of Jesus, she was one of the wise virgins, right? Mm. This is a very important distinction. Jesus says there are wise virgins and there are unwise virgins, and the unwise virgins have no oil for their lamps, right? Their hearts are cold. Their, their hearts are burnt out. And then there are the wise virgins who have plenty of oil for their lamps. Their hearts are on fire. And it sounds like this woman you knew was one of those. Mm -hmm. Well, Sister Wendy was one of those for me. I, I was in my, I don't know, early 20s. I'm, I'm channel surfing. This is the early 90s. I'm channel surfing. I had never seen her before. There she is in a full habit. She had these kind of buck teeth. And, and she's standing. What caught my eye was she's standing in front of a full nude painting. Mm -hmm. And she says, the first words I hear out of her mouth, she's zooming in on this woman's pubic area. And she says, she says, look at the beautiful, beautiful puff of her pubic hair. And I, I thought, whoa, she's a nun? What? This is a different version of, of a Catholic nun than I've ever encountered in my life. And <laughs> that's amazing. I became a fan of Sister Wendy and I would watch Sister Wendy. And I learned so much from Sister Wendy. She was totally at peace with the, the naked body. Mm -hmm. She was totally at peace in her own body. Mm. She, and she, she exuded that. And she, she shared the mega mystery that's revealed through the human body. Mm. And I, I remember this interview with Sister Wendy. In fact, I show it to my students. It is, again, probably mid-90s that it was filmed where the, the interviewer, I forget his name, but everybody would recognize him if you watched, uh, you know, network news in the 90s. Um, he said, who are you? Who are you, a consecrated virgin, to tell us about the meaning of the body and sexuality? And, and she says, so beautifully, she says, well, I believe in God, you know, and God is the creator of the naked, beautiful body. If I'm in touch with God, I'm in touch with how beautiful the naked body is. Mm. This liberation, liberation, you know, and not in a pornographic way, not in a salacious way. She says, nudity in art is meant to convey the transcendent mystery. This is very different from pornography, which is something base. This lifts you to the heights. Mm. <laughs> so beautiful, so free, so healing. It's, I mean, it's so funny when you say that, how common sense it is, but also how um, radical it is for so many of us. Like, oh my gosh, how come I never learned this ever? You know, and it's taking us, you know, so much longer. Um, 
Yeah. We think there are only two choices. Right. Repress it or indulge in a pornographic version of things. There's another way. Yeah. There's another way. I know. And I feel like that's really what I want to dedicate my life to is really being able to share this beautiful heart at the core of Christianity and really at the core of every religion that has this mystical center of like, hey, psst, we're called to divine union, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah, and here, you know, when the psalmist says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing I shall want. Mm. It is not the erasing of the want. It's the super abundant fulfillment of the want, mm -hmm. right? And, and here, I, I think we do need to make some distinctions that there are some religions, uh, either the kind of repressive brand of Christianity or some Eastern religions that think that the solution to the ache is to try to erase it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Christian proposal, authentic Christianity, is very different. Uh, it's not an erasing of the ache. It's an opening of the ache to a super abundant fulfillment. Yeah. Ecstasy beyond our wildest imaginings. What, what the mystics stammering to put a language to it would say, it's, it's nuptial union with love eternal. And, and that reminds me of a, a great story of a modern mystic, a Carmelite nun, who was, was giving a lecture to an audience and she was trying to put into words her experience of, of union with eternal love. And an agnostic psychologist comes up to her after the talk and, she's, and he says to her, you are sick. What you really want is sex, but you're disguising your desire for sex with all this ridiculous talk about union with God. And she responded very clearly, very firmly. She said, oh, no, I beg to differ. What the world really wants is union with God. Mm. But it's disguising that desire with all this ridiculous sex. Mm. Who was right? Yeah. If there is no transcendent mystery, well, then the, the agnostic psychologist was right. But if there is a transcendent mystery, and that transcendent mystery has come down to our level to bring us up into the transcendent mystery of infinite bliss, well, then that Carmelite nun was right. Mm, mm -hmm. And we all have to decide where we stand. You know, we can't, there's no point shoving that down somebody's throat. We all have to go on our own journey mm -hmm. into the ache and be honest about what's the shape of the ache. Mm. Let's be honest about that. Is, is there, put it this way, if there is something in this world, in this world that can satisfy that ache, somebody please let me know. Because I've tried everything. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten to the point of, of trying to be more honest with myself and saying, I think there's something here in my experience that nothing in this world can satisfy. Yeah. And C.S. Lewis says, if that's the case, then it only makes sense that we're made for a transcendent world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, I love how um, there are so many of these 
well, portals, if you will, but really you could call them small s sacraments, you know, I mean, and that's exactly yep. what sex is, right? I mean, that's what it's like here. But not Indian. only mm -hmm. in the Catholic tradition, it's not only small s. Right. It is the sacrament. <laughs> marriage, marriage is the union of the two becoming one flesh is a sacrament in the Catholic mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. Oh, that yeah. should open our eyes. Maybe, right. maybe it's not all about repression after all. Yeah, yeah. It's just such a shame that this is such a well-kept secret. I know, I know. The mega mystery, nobody knows. And when we don't know the mega mystery of our sexuality, and we don't know how to, to open our sexuality in this way, yeah. we end up doing either this or this, and both of these take us in the direction of what I call the mega misery mm. of sexuality. Yeah. But there's also hope here. And my own life is kind of this trajectory. I, I was raised on that starvation approach, repress, repress, repress. I spent years in the fast food approach, indulge, indulge, indulge. But that led me to a place of so much pain and dysfunction in my life that I cried out and said, there's gotta be more. And I kept looking and I discovered this teaching by this crazy Polish guy known to the world as John Paul II, called the theology of the body. And I learned from him that Christianity is not a starvation diet. It's an invitation to a wedding feast, mm. a wedding feast that corresponds to the hunger. Uh, man, if that's real, then I think the world wants to know about it. And I think I have the best job in the world. I just get to tell hungry people that there's a banquet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of people are hungry for that. Um, starved, we're starved. Yeah. And the classic parable here to illustrate this point is the prodigal son, mm. right? The, what, what caused the prodigal son to leave the father's house? His hunger, his passion. Mm. What caused him to come back? The very same thing. Mm. And then there's this older brother who was not in touch with his passion. Mm. And, and being in the father's house to him was just about following all the rules. Mm -hmm. And the tragedy, the tragedy, we have to remember the parable, it says, Jesus addressed this parable to the Pharisees. Mm. The parable is not so much about the son who left and came back. All is well that ends well, right? The parable is about the older brother yeah. who refused to enter the party. Yeah. He refused to enter the celebration because he had reduced living in the father's house to following a bunch of rules. Mm. He, the father says, everything I have is yours. Won't you come celebrate? He didn't enter the party. That's the tragedy. Yeah. I think the whole culture is, is you know, the culture of the sexual revolution is the, the, the son who leaves the father's house, but gets to the bottom of the barrel mm, and yeah. eventually returns, mm. right? I think we're close to the bottom of the barrel. Mm. And I think we're gonna see a mass return, but this is where you're exactly right, Kelly. We're not gonna return to, to truth shoved down our throat as a list of rules. We're only gonna return if people can witness to the beauty of the truth, the truth that sets us free, the truth that there is a banquet 
that corresponds to the hunger and we don't have to eat the food of the pigs. Mm -hmm. Our father has a banquet, a celebration ready for us if we would trust in his love. Mm -hmm. One question that occurs to me, I know we're almost talking an hour here, um, but one thing that I'd love to hear your thoughts on is um, when people are so acutely aware that they're disembodied, you know, like sometimes, I mean, incredibly so, like I can't sense things in my body. Um, what do you recommend to people, whether it's an embodied practice or anything else to yes. help to help us feel more settled in our own skin? It's a great question, Kelly. Thank you for posing it. Uh, this is one of my favorite interviews I've ever done, by the way. That's great. Um, I I'm reminded of what Teresa of Avila said. She said, if you want to learn how to pray, get in touch with your senses. Mm. And I, I would say there is certainly a time in your life where your senses were alive. Mm. Was it the fragrance of a flower? Was it the deliciousness of a favorite dessert? Was it a piece of music? Uh, was it uh, a hike on a mountain or a, or a desert trail? There was a time in your life, was it salt air at the ocean? There was a time in your life where your senses were alive. I would say, uh, and, and this would be in the spirit of St. Ignatius, repetition right return to that go repeat that uh go to the ocean and breathe in the salt air and and let yourself feel it and smell it and and taste it on your tongue uh treat yourself to to good food treat yourself to good music treat yourself to good art in my life art and nature are the things that awaken me more than anything mm. and we can in a kind of guilt trippy way think those are luxuries they're not luxuries they are necessities for us to be fully alive mm -hmm. what was a movie that moved you as a child go watch that movie again what was your favorite? These are assignments actually I give to my students. I, I tell my students, what was your first favorite song? And I say, go listen to it again. And the students come back to me and they report true mystical encounters by revisiting favorite songs from their childhood, favorite movies from their childhood. When, when art comes alive in our lives, it's a sign of the movement of the spirit, no doubt in my mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say it's easy to want to try to, um, I'm sure you've done this as well. If you had like a profound experience in prayer and you try to recreate the circumstances, like, okay, I was sitting like this, I was reading this book and doing the thing. Okay, now ready, go, your turn, God. You know? <laughs> like, do that thing that you did again, you know? Right. And But it is amazing how when we open ourselves to the mystery, um, I, especially like you were saying in art and in nature, I just find wonder such a perfect shortcut to contemplation, you know, because yes. it just strips yes. you of all words, 
Like you're not thinking through things. You're not analyzing a text. You're not like trying to remember your mantra. You know, it's just like, yeah. <laughs> it, in the stillness, the encounter happens in the yeah. stillness. And I, I, I'm reminded of an analogy I once heard, which illustrates your very point about how we try to recreate the experience. And there's, we can do that to a certain point and we're meant to get ourselves in the right disposition. Mm -hmm. But eventually we, at the end, at the final analysis, we can't grasp at the experience. Yeah. It's a given, it's something that's given as a gift. We can only receive it as a gift. And here's the analogy. I think it's, it's helped me tremendously. It's a surfing analogy. If you wanna go surfing, you have to get the surfboard, you have to put it on your car, you have to drive to the beach, you have to get your wetsuit on, you have to paddle out into the waves, you have to be there, but the wave is not in your control. Mm -hmm. You have to wait for the wave to come. And sometimes you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait, and all the mystics talk about this. They say that, that the, the mystery behind it all allows the waiting in order to stretch our longing so that we have the capacity to see, to receive the infinity that the mystery wants to share with us. Uh, you know, the, the, when the wave comes, wait, 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 wait for it. Wait, when it comes, ride that sucker the whole way to shore. Mm -hmm. yeah, but getting in, the, getting in the disposition you know, your favorite movie, your favorite song, whatever, that that gets us in the place, that gets us in the disposition of wonder, as you said, Kelly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I use that surfing analogy in spiritual wanderlust. Like, I love that analogy. Um, and I don't, and that's one of the reasons why I do recommend any of these things, like what connects you to the divine, what makes you feel grounded or alive, because I think so many times we want to just stick with like the method, you know, like, okay, just focus on my breath or I'm going to pray my rosary or I'm going to do the mantra or whatever it is. Just like the method isn't the point. The method yes. just helps you get on the surfboard. Use the method only in as much as it helps you ride the wave. Mm -hmm. uh, if you cling to the method, there's the danger that you're going to miss the wave. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a, that's a, that's what I was trying to say earlier about, uh, wrote prayers and, and, you know, the way prayer was taught to me in Catholic school. Um, it, the, the method got confused with the end, yes. with the goal. And when you, when you, when you're only taught the method and you're not taught how that method is meant to lead you to the goal, mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, as a Catholic thumbing the beads of the rosary is not the end goal. Right. That's a means to enter contemplation. Right. And, and I remember John Paul II saying, if, if you're praying the rosary and not entering into contemplation, then you're, you're, it's a dead prayer. It's like a soul separated from, it's the body separated from the soul. It, it just becomes an outward uh, uh, mechanism. Um, and there's the danger, he even said. He said, there's a danger that we'll hear the reply of Christ that you thought your prayers would be heard by the multiplication of words. Right? No, we... He, he says, use the method of praying the rosary to get you to contemplation. But once you get into contemplation, it's fine to leave the method behind, right? Once you're in zero gravity, the rocket boosters fall away, right? right? You're there. Don't cling to the rocket boosters. Right. 
Right, exactly. And that's, um, I think the other danger is that when we cling to those things, it, it gives us this nice little ego boost, like, aren't I such a good holy person? Look at me praying all cool and pious like this. Look how wonderfully silent I am and able to pay attention to my breath and, you know, whatever it is. Um, and that pharisaical hypocrisy and self-righteousness is what Christ was most uh, directly harsh about, right? Yeah. That's what you know, he describes such people as whitewashed tombs. Yeah. Being on the outside, but but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all kinds of filth. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a danger. It's a, a spiritual pride is a real danger. Yeah. Let us yeah. let us Whatever rather be mm-hmm. let us rather be just in touch with our poverty and say, Lord, I don't know how to pray. Teach me how to pray. Yeah. My favorite image for the ego is the drunk uncle on the couch. Like sometimes his head pops off the pillow and says really obnoxious things, but I mean, you can't really get rid of him because he's family, but like, sometimes you just gotta be like, oh, that's that's just our drunk uncle. That's my uncle, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry about him. (laughs) Kelly, I wanna say something to your listeners. Sure. About your book. Oh. When you had me, uh, you gave me an advanced copy of your book to read. And when I read it, I thought this is a sister of mine. This woman is in touch with the terrain of the human heart. And I, I just want to say to everybody out there right now, if you have yet to read Kelly's book about spiritual wanderlust, please treat yourself, take it up and give it a read. It it will it helped me, Kelly. I, I felt I felt less alone in the world when I read your book. Thank and you. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for that. Thank you. That's very gracious of you. Yeah. Before we close, is there anything that um, you would like to share either about yourself, what you do, or even where people can find out more about you? Yeah, I, I, would, I would invite people to consider uh, as kind of a, a companion to Spiritual Wanderlust, my version of that book would, is called Fill These Hearts. Mm-hmm. God, Sex, and the Universal Longing. And the whole book is really about these three options. Mm-hmm. Where do we take the ache? What do we do with it? Um, if you're new to, to my work, that would be a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I even call it a, kind of consider that the, the prequel to my book, which is called Theology of the Body for Beginners. Mm-hmm. Um, the beginner's title makes it sound like, oh, that's a good place to start. But Fill These Hearts is the prequel to the beginner's book. Hmm. Um, my wife and I do a podcast called the Ask Christopher West Show. Uh, you can get that wherever podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast, that would be something to check out. Uh, or you can just go to theologythebody.com and check out the website of the Theology of the Body Institute, of which I'm the president, and can learn about the courses we offer online and in person. And yeah, it's just a place to start exploring. Awesome. Well, I so appreciate you sharing some of your your own passion and your own eros and longing. And um, I, I feel a, also a kindred spirit being able to connect um, in such ways. So I appreciate you thank sharing you, that Helen. today. Well, it's, it's been my pleasure, truly. Yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you everyone else for joining us and for listening in. Um, I hope you'll definitely check out Christopher's work. Um, He has some really beautiful things to share. So thank you all. Thanks, everybody.